It was my freshman year in the University of Missouri, in Columbia, Missouri. And I had, unfortunately, I know some, most of you are not going to relate to this, but I had, in high school, cultivated the bad habit of procrastination. That's when you put things off. And uh, I did okay in high school, you know, waiting to the last minute to do my reading assignments and turn papers in, and I thought it was going to be the same way in college. Well, it didn't quite work that way. And I remember, I don't know why I did this when I made my schedule, but I had in my, it was my psychology class, and I had a psychology lab at, I want to say it was 7.20 in the morning. And as an 18-year-old, I thought that was the most ungodly hour to do anything. And I remember that my alarm clock would go off at 7.20, well, it wouldn't go off at 7.20 to get me at class at probably 7.15, right? Um, it actually went off a little earlier than that. And I remember on many occasions, looking at that alarm clock and thinking, you know, forget about it. Especially in the wintertime, I thought, forget about it. I am not getting up and going into that class today. I'll, I'm going to skip it today. And once I made that decision and hit that snooze button or that off button on my alarm, I want to tell you I felt good. <laughs> I felt like I made the right decision. Uh, and that wasn't the only time I skipped classes. I was dating a young lady at the time, who is now my wife, Stephanie, who's sitting right over here. And so there were some times that I didn't go to class because I would have rather been with her. And I want to tell you that when I skipped class and hung out with her, I felt really good about it. I felt like I was doing the right thing. But I will never forget the end of that semester when I came into that, and we had 25,000 people there, approximately, University of Missouri, and of course your classes were smaller, but it, final exam day comes and you go into that vast lecture hall, and you've got all of those chairs and everybody quietly sitting at their table with their paper, and I remember going in and sitting down on exam day, that final exam, and I remember looking at that paper, and everything on it kind of starts swimming, I don't know if you've had that kind of, and you recognize nothing and you realize only too late that you are not prepared for the final exam. And there's nothing you can do about it. The message tonight is entitled, The Final Exam. I want to tell you that happy euphoric feeling I have when I hit the snooze button became an ugly red dragon on exam day. The final exam. Now, one thing we've been talking about this week is we've been talking about the three angels' messages. In fact, I'm going to have... Uh, you guys advanced to the first slide for me here. This is something I've shared, uh, and I hope you can follow along the statement here from the book Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 19. It says, in a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. I, I really want that to sink into your ears. When these young men from Salt came up and, and shared what they did, and Brother, you said Daniel 2. We grow up with it, and we don't have a clue how many people have never heard these things before. Totally unprepared for the coming of Jesus. It says, on them, that is Seventh-day Adventist, is shining wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' messages. Notice there is no other work of so great importance there to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. 
That's pretty serious, isn't it? And, and this, isn't, this isn't us listening to the message. This is us giving the message. And in case I forget to say it later, I want you to be clear on something tonight. Most people are not going to receive the message like this. And they're not going to be receiving it in the evangelistic meeting. Most people need to get it one-on-one. And the Lord has enlisted every one of us and given us the ability. What did the Apostle Paul say? I'm a debtor, both to Jews and to Greeks. Do you know Jesus? Tell somebody who doesn't. Amen? So we've been talking about this, and I've been wanting to dwell on some of the practical aspects. I mean, we talk about, talk about the three angels' messages, and if you talk about Adventist history and you go way back to William Miller and all of that business, for a lot of us, it's, we're far removed from it. So I've been trying to draw out some of the practical implications of those messages. For example, the first angel's message, the message stirred the people with the soon coming of Jesus and led them to examine their own profession of faith in Christ with their actual experience with Christ. And I think we'd all do well to do that. It's easy to say I'm a follower of Jesus. But if Jesus were here in person, would I be going where he's going? The second message exposed, the message of the warning against Babylon exposed the danger of the truth and error mixture of Babylon and her teachings grooming us And I'm going to pick up on this in a minute. Grooming us to receive the mark of the beast. The third angel's message has to do with the mark of the beast, but far more. And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to Revelation 14. And we're going to look at the third angel's message here. Revelation 14, starting in verse 9. Revelation 14 and verse 9. The Bible says, Here then a third angel followed them, that is the first and the second angel, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. I'm going to quiz you here real quick. Who on this earth has ever drank the cup of God's wrath full strength? There's only one. And that's Jesus Christ. And he drank it so nobody else has to. Right? Now this is what the Bible says. Whoever receives this mark will receive... The wrath of God, the wine of the wrath of God, poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, I'm not sure exactly how it is today. I know how it was when I was growing up as a young Adventist. And the mindset was this. Oh, we know about the mark of the beast. This is going to be the Sabbath Sunday thing, right? And here's what I'm going to do. I've got this down cold, Pastor. Here's what I'm going to do. When they pass the Sunday law... That's why I'm going to start going back to church. I'm going to get caught up in my back tithe. I'm going to start drinking decaf and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Right? I'm going to get everything right when they pass the Sunday law. It's all about the, I know the right answers. I got the cliff notes. And when the test comes, I got it. Well, it's not going to roll out that way. See, the mark of the beast is the final test. It's the final exam for humanity. 
But I want you to understand something as we read in this passage here. You know, the mark of the beast is a warning, but it's not a solution. I want you to go to the screen with me and look at something Ellen White wrote interestingly about the third angel's message. This is what she says. Several have written to me inquiring of the message, uh, if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Justification by faith. Let's look at one more that I have on the screen for you. It's from the book Early Writings, and it says this. The third angel closed his message, or closes his message in this way. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Notice what it says next. As he repeated these words, he pointed where? To the heavenly sanctuary. The minds of all who embrace this message are directed to where? The most holy place. Why? Because it's where Jesus stands before the ark making his final intercession. The point is this. The warning message of the third angel is not the solution. The warning of the mar- against the mark of the beast is not the means of resisting the mark of the beast any more than a warning about a coming storm is what prepares you for the storm. The warning should lead you somewhere else for preparation. And the mark of the beast message, that third angel's message, should lead you to Jesus Christ as the only one who can help you stand at that time. And we're going to see that as we unfold it a little bit. One more similar statement. The eyes were directed to the sanctuary. Notice what it says in Great Controversy. The sanctuary in heaven is the what? It's the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. You know what that means? Folks, listen to me carefully. Jesus is really somewhere right now. He's in the heavenly sanctuary. I hear people in the Adventist church even say, hey, we just need to focus on Jesus, and they never talk about the sanctuary. Folks, that's where he is. You want to focus on him, you've got to focus on where he is and what he's doing. And what he's doing there is what we're talking about tonight. What he's doing there is what we're talking about tonight. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 22, and I want you to look at two parables, first in Matthew 22, that Jesus gave... In fact, before we do that, before we do that, go, go back to Revelation. I, I missed something here. Go, go to Revelation 13. I want to I draw something out of this idea of the mark of the beast that a lot of people read over. We're going to Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. Revelation 13, verse 16. The Bible says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or their, what, foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the what? The what? The name of the beast or the number of his name. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to it. Verse 18 says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Keep reading. The chapter breaks. We're not there in the original. John says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written where? On their foreheads. Now, if you're reading the NIV, it says, having his name and his father's name written in the foreheads. Here's what I want you to see. There are not, there's not only one mark in the book of Revelation, there are two. There are two marks. They're marks of allegiance and they're posing marks, and nobody has both. You can only get one. But more importantly, each mark, notice the mark of the beast and the mark in the 144,000 foreheads contains the name 
either the name of the beast or the name of God. Does anybody know what name symbolizes in the Bible? You know, in the Old Testament times, you got names given, for example, the name of uh, the promised child to, Ab uh, to Abraham and Sarah. What was his name? Isaac. Anybody know what the name Isaac means? It means laughter. Why was he named laughter? Because both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the whole idea that they were going to have a child in their old age, right? Names meant something. They were tied to a, something, a characteristic. When Moses, in Exodus chapter 33, said to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. God answered by saying, Moses, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Name is a reference to character. And the point I would make here is this. The mark of the beast is about character more than anything else. At the end of time, you're going to be on one side or the other, not because of the answers you know on the quiz, but because of the character you're forming now, because the character you form now is going to default you to whatever side you're going to end up on. And, and we'll, dis, we'll demonstrate this as we go on this evening. Whether or not a person receives the mark of the beast will be determined by character rather than by knowledge. Notice this next statement I've got on the screen here. The question is asked, what are you doing, brethren, in the great work of what? Preparation. Those who are uniting with the world are receiving the worldly mold and doing what? Preparing for the mark of the beast. You get that? You can prepare for it. It doesn't just happen. You're preparing or being prepared for it even now. Perhaps unbeknownst to you, you're being groomed. Just like a predator grooms his victim, the devil is grooming us to receive this mark. It's an issue of character. Now Jesus illustrated this in a number of places, but we're going to look at two. We're going to look at two parables. The first one is in Matthew 22. This is the parable of the wedding garment. Matthew 22, and we are going to start here tonight, Matthew 22, verse 8. How many of you are familiar with this? I've read the parable of the wedding garment before. Okay, I see a number of your hands. Matthew 22, starting in verse 8. Now, I'm not reading the whole uh, passage here. In the passage, there's a wedding feast that is thrown by a king. And he invites people to this feast. But not everybody who's invited to the feast wants to come. In the parable, the king is God, and the feast is the invitation to the supper of salvation. Okay, now you need to understand that in this parable. And I'm just saving some time by giving you the explanation. You can read it later. But the point is this. Those who accept the invitation to this feast are the ones who say, yes, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Okay, they're accepting salvation. Now notice what it says in verse 8. Because there were those who rejected the invitation, and so it says in verse 8, Then he, the king, said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests... 
he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, it was customary in those days for a king, if he was throwing a big feast, to provide the guests with a fancy garment because it would, it, it, it would add to the pomp of the whole uh, event. You know, it was dressed up, everybody's dressed up nice and what have you. It says, a man came on, and the king saw him, a man came in who did not have on a wedding garment, so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was what? You have your Bible? Verse 12, he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now I want you to understand what Jesus is conveying here in this parable. The, the feast is the invitation to salvation. There's a man who shows up there, and he's sitting in the banquet hall. What that tells you and me is, in his mind, he's accepted salvation. He's accepted uh, justification by faith in Jesus Christ, and he sits there perfectly content. He has full assurance of salvation. King comes in, he's not intimidated by the king coming in. He feels like he has every right to be there. And the king comes up and asks him a question. Friend, how did you get in here without what? A wedding garment. Now that wedding garment, we would say, represents the righteousness of Christ or the righteous character of Christ, the kind of character that God intends to give to every one of us who accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's part of the salvation process. When the king goes in and asks the man where his garment is, what does he say? What did the man say to him? He says he was speechless. Now listen to me carefully. If I showed up at a place like that, and I was glad to be there, and I felt I had a right to be there, and the king came up and asked me, or anybody for that matter, came up and said, hey, what about you were supposed to wear that blue shirt tonight? If I'd never heard anything about it, I'd say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I didn't hear that. Oh, wait a minute, I didn't... What blue shirt are you talking about? What wedding garment are you talking about? The, 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 the reason this man says nothing is because he knew about the wedding garment. But somehow or the other, he didn't think it was important that he had it on. Now let me connect the dots for you. There are a lot of Christians today, and I'm going to tell you, the Bible says that false teachers, false teachers will exist through the end of time. And the Bible says one of the things the false teachers do is they promise God's people liberty, freedom in Christ, while they themselves are slaves to corruption. This is a man who'd accepted Christ. And somebody taught him that it was important once you come to Jesus to walk with Jesus and let Jesus renew your character. But probably some well-meaning somebody or the other came up and said, oh man, that's legalism. You don't got to worry about that. Look, all you got to worry about is you accepted Jesus. And you're okay. And evidently he bought it hook, line, and sinker because there he was, sitting in that banquet hall, feeling like he was perfectly okay until the final exam came and the king showed up and said, where's your wedding garment? And he didn't have one. 
And regardless how much assurance he had of salvation sitting there, he was bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. That should be sobering to us here this evening. I'm going to talk about that weeping and gnashing of teeth in just a moment. But the point of the parable is simply this. The man had a title to heaven, but he didn't have his fitness for heaven. He did not have the character he needed to pass the final exam. Now, incidentally, Jesus gives this concept in another parable that also has to do with a wedding. And it's in Matthew 25. Matthew 25. And and we'll start there in the first verse. This is the parable of the ten virgins, or the ten bridesmaids. Bridesmaids. Bible says in Matthew 25, 1, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all what? Slumbered and slept. The word slumbered is a very interesting word in the Greek. The Greek word that's translated slumbered in our Bibles is the word to nod. Now this may not mean anything to you, but it means a lot to me as a preacher. To nod. Right? I see that sometimes. To nod. And we use the phrase nodding off. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Somebody nods off. They fall asleep. But here's a question I have for you. There's a difference between nodding off and going to bed What would it be? Listen carefully. A person plans to go to bed, but nobody plans to nod off. Who nodded off? The foolish virgins, right? What's it say? All of them did. All of them did. Here at the end of Earth's history, Jesus said everybody's going to nod off. Listen, don't get into into a debate with me about conservative, liberal, blah, 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 blah. Are you committed to Jesus or not? Don't get caught up in the politicizing of everything today. We are at the brink of eternity. And the question is, am I living for Jesus? And Jesus said there are going to be people on both sides that nod off. Or on all sides, or whatever you want to say. But something happened after they nodded off. The Bible says in verse 6, At midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. Now, has anybody read that besides me and thought, Man, what kind of Christians are those? I mean, their brothers and sisters need help, and it's like, No, forget about it, because there's not going to be enough for me and you, and I'm going to make sure I get there. But there's an important lesson in it that Jesus is making, an important point that Jesus is making. The Bible says, verse 10, that the foolish virgins went to buy, and when they did, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. 
And afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, uh, answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now what was it that was lacking in the lives of those foolish virgins? What does it mean they didn't have extra oil? Well, if you've studied this before, it's, oh, it was the Holy Spirit. They needed more of the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It has to do with character. It has to do with character. It has to do with what they've allowed the Holy Spirit to do in their lives. And once again, Jesus gives us a parable where you have two groups of people, but one group of people has put off developing the character they need for the crisis. And here's the thing about character. Character is not formed in a day or even a week. And if you put off the forming of character, there is no time left to do it. And that's what this parable brings out. There was no more time for the foolish virgins. Go to the screen with me. Notice this statement from Christ's Object Lessons, page 412. It says, the great final test comes at the close of human probation. When it will be what? It'll be too late for the soul's need to be supplied. We cannot keep Christ apart from our lives here and yet be fitted for his companionship in heaven. And a lot of us keep Christ apart from our lives, not intentionally, we just get too busy for him. There's coming a time when there's no more time. Look at this next statement. Now this one is especially unsettling. Describes the foolish virgins. You have to understand something. The Bible uses the term virgin to talk about somebody who has a pure faith. These are not hypocrites, and this is what the statement says. The foolish virgins do not represent those who are hypocritical. They had a regard for the truth. They advocated the truth. That means they stood for it and shared it. They were intending to go forth and meet the bridegroom. They're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. Had every intention to be ready. They are attached to those who believe the truth. They like to be in a church and hanging around with other Seventh-day Adventists, eating haystacks together at fellowship meal. They're attached to the tr those who believe the truth and go with them, having lamps which represent a knowledge of the truth. When there was a revival in the church, their feelings were stirred. The appeals were made. They came down to the front. But they failed to have oil in their vessels because they did not bring the principles of godliness into their daily life and character. They did not fall upon the rock Christ Jesus and permit their old nature to be broken up. Is it possible to know the truth? and love the truth, and being around the people who also believe the truth, and yet not let, let or not allow the truth to affect your life? Yes, it is. So how do we form that character? I just want to look at, I'm going to look at two passages on how we're to form that character. The first is in the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5. And I'm just going to touch on this briefly. There's a lot that we could do and look at on 
forming character. Romans chapter 5, starting in the first verse, the Bible says here, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice, having been, past tense, have already been justified, but now what does the apostle say? Verse 2, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know what the glory of God is? It's his character. You see what the apostle says? We rejoice in the hope of what? What's the hope of the Christian? The hope of the Christian is that we'll be like him. Isn't it? I I don't want to be like me. I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to treat people like I treat people. I want to treat people like Jesus treats people. I don't want to love people like I love people. I want to love people like Jesus loves people. They rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now notice this, verse 3. And not only that, but also, we also glory in what? Tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. I like the King James. It says, tribulation works patience. Has anybody, has anybody here ever prayed to God for patience? Okay, look at the text. And look at what you're asking for. And don't be upset with God when tribulation comes, because that's what produces patience. I get this all the time. I have people say to me things like this. Well, listen, I'm sorry I lost my temper. I'm usually a pretty patient person. Have you ever said that? You know what that means? That means I'm usually patient. That is when everything goes my way. Who isn't patient when everything goes their way? Patience is demonstrated when things don't go your way. Tribulation works patience. Now notice, we're not done. Tribulation, i got to find my place again in verse 3, produces perseverance and perseverance character. Now the King James says experience. Those two go together very well. Tribulation brings patience, patience, experience or character, and character, hope. Now the hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. All he's saying is this, and here's what I want you to get. Character comes through a process. Do you see that? It's not just boom, you have character. Tribulation comes, and you've got to wrestle through that, and you've got to exercise your Christian experience, and you've got to plead with Jesus to help you respond differently than you normally would, and that produces perseverance in you. And as you wrestle through those experiences, it develops character in you. And that character, as it's developed in you, it gives you hope because you know you can't build character by yourself. It's a divine thing, and so you see the working of God in your life, and you know the Bible says he who has begun a good work in you will complete it under the day of Jesus Christ. And so you have that hope. But don't miss the main point here that character is a process. It comes through a process of learning to walk with Jesus every day. It's not a whiz-bang, one-moment thing. Which is why the man, when he didn't have the wedding garment, couldn't suddenly get a wedding garment. Which is why the foolish virgins couldn't suddenly go out and get the oil. And it's why the other virgins couldn't give them oil because you can't give character to somebody else. Are you following that? Now, I'm, going to reci- I'm not going to go to the other text. I'm going to recite it. You're probably familiar with it says, what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says that as we behold the glory of the Lord, 
as we behold in a glass or in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. Are you familiar with that passage? Don't miss the language. We're changed from glory to glory. That is from one stage of character to another. Once again, you're looking at a process. And there the apostle says that we receive that character from the time we spend with Jesus. And I just want to put in a plug here for devotional time. And I'm going to draw a distinction between a devotional time and reading your Bible. Because reading your Bible is not necessarily devotional time. Any more than eating lunch with a girl or a guy is a date. I might eat lunch with one of you ladies here, but that doesn't mean we're dating. Right? It has to be in a certain context. And I know a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who, oh, I've got my reading time and I'm going to go plow through my reading time, but they don't do it devotionally. Are you just punching the clock? Or when you spend time with the Lord, are you spending time with the Lord so you can get to know the Lord and understand His will for your life and follow His will for your life? And saints, I want to tell you, I've been a pastor for over 15 years. I've worked with a lot of people on a lot of levels, old and young. We debate all kinds of theological things. We're debating lifestyle standards, and we're debating ordination. We're debating everything under the sun. But we're lucky, many of us, if we spend five minutes in the Bible in a day. And then we're going to debate stuff like we know anything. Without having devotional time with the Lord, we're lucky if we spend five minutes in prayer with the Lord. What can I expect my character to be if I don't walk with Jesus? If I don't spend real time with Jesus? The final exam is coming. And the character we build today is going to decide the action we take. I'll give you a, real ex- a, a, a historical example, a Bible example in the life of Peter. Now let's talk about the Apostle Peter, and I'm closing with this thought. You remember when Peter denied Christ? Let's back up. You remember when Jesus told Peter he was going to deny him? And what did Peter say? Hey, listen, Lord, the other guys may deny you, but I'll die for you. Do you remember that? And then Jesus told Peter, you're not going to die for me, Peter. Before the rooster crows three times, or crows uh, twice, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, no way. That's not going to go down that way with me. And let me ask you a question. Do you think Peter meant what he said? I guarantee you Peter was as sincere as the day is long. I guarantee you that Peter meant every word he said, but here's the problem. Peter didn't realize that his character was so weak. And Jesus knew it, that when his test came, as much as he wanted to do the right thing, he would default to the wrong thing. As much as he intended to stand for Christ, when the pressure of the test came, because he was worried more in his life about his reputation than his relationship with Christ, when the test came, he defaulted to the wrong side. You know, the Bible tells us that 
in Galatians chapter 6 that we are going to reap what we sow. And the context of Galatians 6 is talking about character. And I want you to see one of the most fascinating statements I've read in the pen of, from the pen of Ellen White in the book Education on the screen here. It's from Education, page 108. It says, By the laws of God in nature, effect follows cause with unvarying certainty. The reaping testifies to what? The reaping testifies to the sowing. In other words, the harvest tells what you planted. It goes on to say, here no pretense is tolerated. Men may deceive their fellow men and may receive praise and compensation for service which they have not rendered, but in nature there can be no deception on the unfaithful husbandmen the harvest passes sentence of condemnation. Let me just break that down. If a farmer plants corn and he goes around and tells everybody he planted tomatoes, sooner or later it's going to be evident to everybody that he planted corn no matter what he's talking about. The harvest pronounces the sentence. You will reap what you sow. You plant corn, you get corn. You plant tomatoes, you get tomatoes. You plant peaches, you don't get apples. The harvest passes sentence. Now notice what it goes on to say. And in the highest sense, the highest sense, this is also true in what realm? The spiritual realm. It is in appearance and not in reality that evil succeeds. You look at the world today, you say, well, evil, evil seems to be going. No, only in appearance. It's not in reality. And you'll see what that means in just a moment. The child who plays truant from school, the youth who is slothful in his studies, the clerk or apprentice who fails of serving the interests of his employer, the man in any business or profession who is untrue to his highest responsibilities may flatter himself that so long as the wrong is concealed, he's gaining an advantage. You know, when I was in high school, my senior year in high school, I switched high schools. I moved, I was living, my parents were divorced, I went from living with my mom to living with my dad, and my dad wasn't home when school started, so when school started and they needed a signature, I signed my dad's name when I was in the principal's office. You know what that meant? That meant any day I wanted to skip school, or leave early. All I needed was a note from my dad. And guess what signature they had on file? Mine. So I'd skip. I told you, I, I, I built these habits in high school. Skip class, I don't need to go, sign my own note. And I thought I was getting away with something. Isn't that what it says? person may flatter himself that as long as the wrong is concealed, he's gaining an advantage. That's what led to my college experience. And on exam day, the jig was up. He may think he's gaining an advantage, but it goes on to say this, but not so, he is what? He is cheating himself. Listen to the last sentence here. The harvest of life is character. And it is this that determines destiny both for this life and the life to come. What kind of character are you 
building. I told you I was going to come back to weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember it says they were cast out into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I used to wonder what that meant. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's this talking about? You know, gnashing of teeth. What do you think about when you think of gnashing teeth? I think initially for me, I think of anger. But this is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's not gnashing your teeth in anger. It's anguish. It's anguish. And the best I can describe it, I... I really tried to figure this out for a long time. I wondered what it meant until I actually got a little taste of it. I had a car that was under warranty and I started having a problem with the car. When I would go around a corner, I'd hear this clunk, clunk in the back of it. And I had bought this car and it had a, it had a, 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 a warranty on the suspension up to 100,000 miles. And I was at 98,000. And I thought, man, I ought to get that in while it's under warranty. 98,000. I got 2,000 miles to go. I put it off, and 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 I finally get to 99,900 or something and thought, I got to get this thing in. So I remember taking it into the dealership, and I described the problem. I said, well, check it out. And I said, it's under warranty. Oh, the lady tells me what it's going to cost, and I said, it's under warranty. Oh, she said, if it's under warranty, you won't have to pay a thing. I said, good. She calls me back later that day, said, we checked it out, we found the problem. Yeah, it's what we thought it was, um, but I got some bad news for you. Your warranty was 100,000 miles or seven years, and your seven years ended last week. I want to tell you there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And let me explain what I mean. The anguish in the situation, the frustration comes from the reality that I could have done something about it, but I waited too long. And now it was forever too late. And I'm not talking about a warranty repair on a car. I'm talking about eternity. We're talking about eternity tonight and what kind of character we're building and what we may be putting off. I could have done something about it, but I waited until it was too late. And there are no words that can give the full impact of what that's going to be at the end of time. No words. There are those here tonight who have been putting your spiritual life on the back burner, waiting for someday. I don't know when someday is. And I understand from your school paper that you just buried a friend this week that nobody expected to be burying this soon. My young friends, it is no time to play with your relationship with Jesus. The Spirit of God is giving us opportunity tonight to make our calling and election sure. Where is my standing with Christ? What kind of character am I building now? How is my walk with Jesus now? And I want to encourage you tonight... I don't know where you've been. I'm not here to condemn you for where you've been. The Lord Jesus is here tonight to say to you, regardless what your past has been up until this moment tonight, Jesus is inviting you now to make your spiritual life your priority. Is that why you're here at a Christian school? That's the concept anyway. I want to challenge you tonight, and I want to ask how many of you want to say tonight, Lord Jesus, help me to have the character fit for heaven. Is that your desire tonight? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, as we've reflected upon these things tonight in your word, Lord, you've spoken through clay. 
but I do pray that the Spirit of God would speak clearly to our hearts and our minds. Father, we thank you for your great and everlasting love, the love that draws at us to walk with you and to learn of you and to build those characters now. But the enemy knows all too well that our characters will default us to our final choice, and he does everything he can to get us to put off and put off our relationship with you. I pray, Lord, tonight that you would help us to reprioritize, if necessary, our commitments, that our walk with you would be foremost. We thank you for the Sabbath hours and the blessing that we have of spending time with you. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.